let me share with you some pretext for the sermon today. I would say that it is a fair statement that by and large, the church, big C, does not know how to effectively minister to people who struggle with things like anxiety and depression, who struggle with addiction, who struggle with um, all the besetting things that can happen in a person's life. Part of that is because we don't know what to do with it. And part of it is because it makes us uncomfortable to talk about it. Let me share with you a few things that I've alluded to in the past, but I'll just go ahead and make them public for the world to know, to be emboldened on our website in a sermon MP3 and all. I have my entire life struggled to various degrees and varying extents with sadness and depression, sometimes mildly and sometimes acutely. In fact, it was in one of those moments that God used the state of sadness in which I found myself to call me to himself. Because of providence, I have woven deep into the fabric of my being a heightened sense of anxiety where in every little moment of life I find the floodgates of my adrenal glands opening wide and my heart telling me this is it. The sky is falling. And I have heard people in God's church who say, if you just trust Jesus, if you just read your Bible more, if you just rejoiced in the Lord, and it is those people that I lovingly wanted to thump In Jesus' name. (laughs) I stand before you as a sinner in need of grace. And I give you this pretext because you need to know why this particular text on this particular day was such a labor to work through. Because the text calls us to be patient. And it calls us to wait. Do you know what I do with idle time when I'm left to my thoughts and my inner doubts and my inner fears? 
I don't wait well. And so I want to invite you this morning to hear God, to hear the grace of the gospel, and hear it from one who is still clinging to grace as we walk by faith and not by sight. I do not declare God's word to you this day as one who has figured it all out. I declare God's word to you today as one who clings to Jesus alone, who has good days and who has bad days, who sees his own heart exposed by the text and can do nothing but run to Jesus. James doesn't leave well enough alone. In chapter 5, verses 7 through 12, we hear his um, penultimate shot to point people to the gospel. Let's turn there together. Let's stand and read. As you listen today, would you not only pray for your own heart? But would you pray for the heart of, one, of the one who speaks, that we would see Jesus in him only? Hear God's word. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Search our hearts and know us, O God. Rob us of our sin and make us holy. That we would glory in our one and true Redeemer, Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Be seated. In the name of transparency, I'll tell you a silly story now and a more serious story later. The silly story comes as I was a college student who had scraped together enough money to purchase my very first car. I knew that I was on borrowed time with a car that had 
over 120,000 miles on it. But at that point, I needed four wheels, an internal combustion engine, and enough brakes to get me from point A to point B. But as a college student, I didn't have two nickels to rub together. And there would come those times when the car would not run properly. And I would take it to the mechanic. And I would go home. And I would wait. And the anxiety would take over in such a palpable way that the least destructive thing that I could do to try and pull my heart rate back, to calm the streaming adrenaline in my body, was try and take a nap. At least it would pass the time until the mechanic called with the bad news. You see, my confession to you today is that when times of waiting come in my life, I immediately go to doubt and despair rather than delight. James has set before us the hope that we all look forward to. Behold, the coming of the Lord is at hand. And therefore he says, be patient. See, James is always interested in developing our character, our apprehension and delight in the gospel in the present moment in which we find ourselves. And so for James, the hope that we have that Jesus, the king, returns again is great. What does that do for us in the present moment? What that does for us in the present moment is call us to be mindful about how we are exercising patience. God is calling us to cultivate patience in our lives so that our delight would be shown in him. How do we define patience? James uses several versions of the word patience in our text. He uses the verbal form and he uses the noun form. It comes in three places. You see him calling us to patience in verse 7 and verse 8. The word patient is a passive virtue. It's simply the act of waiting. 
The second one that you find is in verse 8, where he says, establish your hearts. This is now uh, taking a more active stance. This word establish is used as a command here in other places in Scripture. We see it used in slightly different ways. For instance, in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, uh, Jesus says he set his face towards Jerusalem. There is an active virtue that's happening in the passive act of waiting. He set his face towards something. The final phrase comes in verse 11 where James says, there is a blessedness for those who remained steadfast. Uh, This is a resolve or determination, but more on that in a moment. Verse 7 gives James's readers a very clear context of what's happening. For us as listeners in the 21st century, we would need to understand a little bit about the climate patterns of Palestine. When James talks about receiving the early and the late rain, what does he mean? The early rain would have come in October. It would have prepared the soil for seed to be sown. The seed would be sown, and then the next major rain would come in March and April, and it would prepare the seed for harvest. And between the times of October and March and April, there's not much the farmer can do, is there? If you remember from our series in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus, in fact, told a parable about the farmer who waits on the seed. There's nothing that he can do about the seed except patiently wait for the seed to do what the seed is going to do beneath the soil's surface. Consider this. In the midst of James's overall message. If you'll remember, the letter began thinking about life and faith in this, this present moment with an exhortation to consider when trials come to count them all as joy. We said all of life is a trial. We are not operating disconnected from God until an acute trial comes and then we run to him for wisdom only then to disconnect from him once more. We said that all of, tri- all of life is a trial until the Lord comes. Therefore, we needed the wisdom to come from on high to inform our present so that we would walk faithfully with the Lord. And there was a result that would come from that. We are not looking for wisdom to deal with trials when they come, but a wisdom that would reshape and change us. James 1, 2 through 4 says in part, You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If the point of our life 
is to be like Jesus, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And the evidences that this is happening is that we are showing through the works of our faith that our faith is in fact genuine. One of the key ingredients to this happening is patience. To put it another way, to be like Jesus is not something that you just fall into. It is a moment-by-moment active resolve to love him, to lean on him, to learn from him. All of the little moments of life, the choices and the crosses that we encounter and bear are opportunities to either delight in the Lord or to doubt him. They're all opportunities to delight in the Lord or to doubt him. James says, you also be patient, verse 8. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 9, don't grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So as I mentioned just a moment ago, in the process of waiting, the farmer can do nothing in the in-between, the early and the late rain, except to wait. Now, some of you have heard me tell the story before about the uh, journey of faith that was Jen's and my pregnancy with our first child. At 18 weeks, we did not think that he was going to survive the pregnancy. She was taken to the hospital. She was put on immediate bed rest. And I, being a person with great anxiety, saw my worst fears being played out before me. And so what did I do? I disconnected. I couldn't even acknowledge that there was a baby or much less name a name that we might bestow upon him because it made it too real. And so in this process of waiting and in this process of being patient, I left my wife alone and scared because I was alone and scared. And we couldn't talk to one another about it. And I completely threw myself into my work because I needed to distract my heart and distract my emotions from the pain that I was avoiding because I couldn't, in fact, trust that God was good. That summer, General Assembly was in Nashville, Tennessee. I ran into a colleague of mine that he and I had worked together at our church in Florida. I hadn't seen him in years. We hadn't stayed in touch. He asked me how I was doing. I told him what was going on. 
He said, we lost a child. If I can tell you one thing, it'd be this. Your wife needs her husband and your baby needs his daddy. You love him, you name him, and you pray for him because he's yours. And he called me out of denying that there was a baby, dulling my senses, doubting God, trying to run to all of my usual haunts to manage my sadness. And he said, in this time of waiting, trust God that he is good and he does what is good. See, that's the thing, isn't it, friends? We don't know what to do with waiting. We don't know what to do with quiet. We live in a distracted world, and the distractions only go to feed our unease and our uncertainty. I was reading a book by Nate Larkin this week. Nate was a pastor for some time. He had a long-standing addiction that eventually undid his ministry. He was talking about how accountability really doesn't do a lot. Accountability ends up just being sin management. Did you sin in that way this week? Nope. Good. We'll check back in next time. Now, he said the thing that really got to him was when a friend in a 12-step program looked at him and he said, your problem is not your addiction. Your addiction is your favorite solution. Your problem is that you're alone and you're scared because you ultimately feel like God can't be trusted And so rather than managing your pain, rather than bringing your heart to the Lord, you instead run to your favorite solution. I don't know, by the way, what your favorite solution is. It could be busyness. It could be anger. Your temper allows you to feel like you're in control because you can finally say your peace and get your way. It may be food, it may be drink, it may be sex. It may just be the constant dulling of your mind by letting the screen flicker and the channels change and Netflix judgingly ask, are you still there? I don't know what your issue is. And we should talk about it. We should talk about the things that rob you of your delight in God. But let me tell you this, friends. Your your issue, whatever it is, is not your problem. It's your favorite solution. It's 
whether it be taking a nap or telling someone off. Because what happens is the process of waiting reveals our tendency to wonder. Look, James says, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. This great and glorious eschatological moment when Jesus returns and sets all things right. And the new heavens and the new earth begin and the marriage supper of the Lamb commences. This is a good thing. The analogy that he gives, when the farmer reaps from the earth, the precious fruit of the harvest is a good thing. And therefore, establish your hearts. Look into these things and establish your hearts there. These are all good things. It's a readying term. We're to prepare for whatever. But how does the enemy of God, how does the enemy attack us in these times of waiting? It's most often relationally prolonged seasons of waiting and gender questions about the goodness of God has he forgotten me it is the wound as old as creation itself did God really say prolonged seasons of waiting and an apparent absence of the hand of God can thus cause all of us to turn inward. God mustn't love me. I have to take care of myself. But it's more so than how it damages our vertical relationship with God. It also impacts our relationship with one another. Do not grumble, verse 9, against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. It is our tendency in our, in our sadness, in our fear to speak in anger and haste when under pressure. We speak harshly against family and friends when we're sleepless, when we're oppressed. We grumble against each other when someone else wrongs us. If a great fool or a great foe ruins our day, we vent our tensions against those we love. It is typical of James to point out that a disordered heart leads to a disorderly tongue. Nothing that we do is neutral. The habits and the actions that we repetitively engage in are cultivating something in our hearts. When you're called to wait because you're in an unhappy spot with your job, when you're called to wait because your spouse is no longer giving you the fireworks that were there once in your marriage, When you're called to wait because you're not seeing the fruit of the gospel taking root in your kids' lives. When you're called to wait because somehow, some way, you still have it in you that you've got to prove that you're not a screw-up and that you're worth something to someone. When you're called to wait on God, what do you do? Do you run to fix things? Do you fill your day with busyness? 
What do you do? You see, it's the delight of our hearts that James is after here, and this is ultimately how we cultivate patience. When the Bible talks about the coming of the Lord being at hand, the Bible never promotes the question, when will Jesus return? We love to ask that question. That's not what the Bible's concerned with. The Bible always promotes the question, will you be ready when he returns? The hope of our future informs our present living. We endure because this world is not all there is. When I got home from General Assembly that summer, I came home. I wept with Jen. I told her all of the ways that I had tried to distance myself from what God had providentially brought into our lives. And when I can't take a nap, I'll take a long shower. At least the noise and the hot water will drown out the sounds of my own tears. And all I could do that day was take upon my lips the words of the psalmist, Oh God, you are good and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. You are good and you do what is good. Teach me your statutes. James moves to an object lesson. He wants us to consider the pattern of those that have gone before us. Look at what he says in verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, if you know anything about the prophets of the Old Testament, you know that most of them did not have an easy road to go. How is it that they endured? Well, look at, for example, look at Isaiah. Look at the job description that Isaiah got in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 through 10. Isaiah was told that his people would actually actively not hear the message that the Lord had commanded him to speak. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. How's that for job satisfaction? Later in Isaiah 30 verse 10, he records for us what the people's response to his message was where they said, don't prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. That may or may not have been a prayer of my own heart in preparing for the sermon. I'm just going to be honest with you. One of these days, I'll get a health and wealth passage, and it'll be awesome. I kid. Sort of. 
The prophet Jeremiah was put in an oxen's yoke. Hosea was told to go and marry a prostitute to bring a tangible expression to God's people of their own unfaithfulness. Amos, Elijah, Elisha, and Ezekiel all saw God's people ignore the word of the Lord. But they didn't just passively take it. They all endured. Verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. What is the steadfastness of Job? By the way, did your parents ever look at you and say that you could, te- you could test the patience of Job? Mine did. <laughs> Strong-willed child. Dan Doriani says this. Job persevered. He lost all his wealth. His children perished. His wife vilified him, but he never deserted the Lord. His wife scoffed in Job chapter 2, verse 9, curse God and die. But Job let God be God, and he said in chapter 2, verse 10, shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? And again, in chapter 1, verses 21 through 22, he said, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in chapter 42, verse 7, In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Now, here's the deal, friends. If you think that what James is saying here is that Job was a pretty patient guy, And he set before you a good example. So be patient like Job. You're going to miss it. Job said, the Lord gives. And the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Bible's not calling you to be like Job. The Bible is calling you to have your delight where Job's delight was. The Bible's calling you not to be like Isaiah, but have your delight where Isaiah's delight was. The Bible's not calling you to get it together. The Bible's calling you to trust the one who is the only one who can get you together. James says, look, And how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. This is not language that's far off and aloof and disconnected. This is not the language of the relative who sends you a Christmas card or a birthday card once a year and says, I hope you have a great year. This is is relational language. This This is not the language of a God who's too busy to notice the little things of our world. God is not detached and disconnected from us. God is delighted in us so that we might find our delight in him. I know where my foibles are. 
I know how I have nightmares that I can't control. I know how I have adrenaline glands that fire on all cylinders as if the sky itself is falling. I know how I run to things I feel like I can control. I know that I do all of these things because of the vulnerability of taking my heart before the Lord and waiting before him in the midst of circumstances that I can neither predict nor control is too terrifying for me sometimes. Our text today is not a call for you to steal yourself to the world. It's a chance for you to ask yourself, what happens in your heart when God calls you to be patient and wait on him? When the prayers that you offer seem to go unanswered and the circumstances in your life feel just that far out of your control, where do you go when God calls you to be patient and wait on him? What do you do to go and find your favorite solution to numb your heart or to disconnect yourself from the world around you? How does your tongue betray the inner workings of your heart? Beloved, the question of patience is not a question of stoic duty, but a question of delight. God is asking you to take a serious and honest appraisal this day of where is your delight found? And that's not going to be the magic pill that takes away all the other stuff. It is, in fact, rather the only solution that you can consistently bank on in the midst of all the other stuff. I would love to stand before you today and say, I don't get sad anymore because I found Jesus. And I don't get anxious anymore because I have found Jesus. I cannot tell you those things. What I can tell you is the only thing that makes those things bearable is because Jesus found me. And he still loves me on the days that I act like he didn't. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. He did not detach himself from you, but he sent his son to rescue you because he loved you. Just like the farmer can do nothing to hasten his crop, so also we can do nothing to hurry the circumstances that God has providentially allowed in our lives. When trials and adversity come, are we patient and do we rest in the compassion of the Lord or do we panic and run to the countless things that we do to distract our minds and dull our hearts? Beloved, this is a day of grace. Stop running. Stop running. Welcome home. Doubters and sinners and depressed people and anxious people and busy people and angry people. Welcome home. God's not looking at you waiting for you to get your act together if you just believe the Bible more. God's looking at you and saying, come to me. I'm compassionate and I'm merciful. And even though you don't know what I'm doing, I know what I'm doing. 